I would just say the biggest thing that you learn very early as a player is just the adversity you deal with as a young person that you have to figure out along the way. Today on the podcast, we sit down to talk with the head coach at the University of Rhode Island, Coach Archie Miller. Coach Miller is a Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania native and went on to move south to continue his playing career at NC State. Upon graduation, Miller would carry on his basketball career on the other side of the lines as he would coach at a variety of places in various assistant roles, including Western Kentucky, NC State, Arizona State, Ohio State, and Arizona. He started his head coaching career at Dayton University for six years, which led him into another head role at Indiana for four, and then currently where he resides now, the University of Rhode Island. Please welcome Coach Archie Miller. Video analysis is expensive and your budget probably isn't getting much bigger. Fulcrum Tech is here to help. Used by basketball teams at all levels from Division I all the way to high school, their Angles product is very similar to what you know and allows you to code, capture, and analyze with ease. All you have to do is import the raw video and synergy with just the click of a mouse. Over the past two years, over 60% of Division I teams and conferences such as the SEC, Pac-12, American, NBC, and A-10, just to name a few, have made the postseason all while using Fulcrum Tech and saving thousands and thousands of dollars compared to their old company. Reach out to Fulcrum Tech on X at Fulcrum Tech or their sales at sales at fulcrumtech.com. Just shoot them over an email and be sure to mention if you are a Rising Coaches member. Do more, spend less with Fulcrum Tech. Welcome everyone to another episode of the rising coaches podcast you have myself doug caputo as well as alan major here and today on the podcast we are excited to be speaking with the current men's basketball coach at rhode island coach archie miller coach miller what's going on what's up guys good to be here how you doing brother doing well doing well well we're excited to have you on definitely get to learn more from you to give you kind of a general idea of how this is going to go we're going to talk about your experiences your journey First off, starting as a player, then leading into a coach and getting to where you are now. And then um, we'll talk a little bit about your first year head coaching adjustment. So I know you had a, a couple first year head coaching positions. So just talk about like some adjustments that maybe you made to help excel at those programs. Then we'll get into our final segment where we like to call three quick hitters and then shoot a final question and go from there to kind of round things back to the beginning. So talking about your journey, you started your college career and had a four-year stint in NC State. Uh, just talk about those experiences, you know, playing at NC State and maybe some things that you've learned as a player that you still incorporate to this day. Well, you know, my time at NC State was late 90s, early 2000s. Um, at that point in time, the realignment world hadn't happened. You know, so the ACC was the brand in college basketball. Um, it was a nine-team league, round robin. You played everybody twice. And you know, at that point in time, when I was entering college, you know, of the nine, I think uh, my first year as a freshman, I believe that six of the nine in the ACC that year were in the top 10. So my introduction to college basketball was Vince Carter, Antoine <laughs> Jameson, Steve Wojciechowski, Rashawn McLeod, Elton Brand, and, and you just start naming the players in the league from every, every Terrell Buckner, or Greg Buckner, Terrell McIntyre, Matt Harper, and you just start going down 
And you're probably going to talk about two dozen NBA players, you know, and it just, hmm. to me, the first thing I would tell you about learning, you know, the ropes for me was probably the eye-opening experience of, can I make it? This is different. This isn't 2023 where you just said, hey, in a month and a half, this isn't working. I'm going to transfer. I mean, like you're almost stuck at that point. And, you know, you kind of went to college and it was like, okay, I'm living in this new world. And it's called adversity. You know, I I think the first thing is the realization for players that it's very difficult. You know, it's not an it's not a seamless transition, you know, and I think from my standpoint, learning how hard it was going to be and the long road that it was going to take to become just a functioning player. You know, I mean, you feel like basketball was the thing that you grew up with. (laughs) None of this feels like basketball, what I'm doing right now. Like this is a whole different world. And then and then kind of figuring it out on your own you know, having great coaches that would spend time with you. And then month by month, you know, I, the realization of being in like Christmas and January of being a completely different person and player, you know, how you approach things, what, you know, and, and having a successful freshman year, like from where I started was the first thing that I would, I would look at and say to yourself, like, man, adversity starts on day one. You need great coaches. You need to be able to weather storms as a player. You need to able to handle things. And then as I got older, I dealt with more adversity. You know, I had a season ending back injury as a sophomore. I was off to a great start. I had to redshirt, you know, the, the comeback from an injury of that, that caliber, you know, that's a whole different element of like adversity. You know, you're, you're once, you know, feeling one way and you come back and the realization of, I have to almost teach myself how to go again. Um, you know, injuries and then losing, losing in college, you know, that struggle from when Herb Sendek was a first, second year coach at NC State in that league that I talked about, the realization of climbing that ladder and, and how hard it was going to be to win in that, in that league and be, being a winner and how important it started to become as a player rather than just playing basketball. Like it was about winning and you start to learn like winning is everything. And like finishing my college career on the highest note of being able to you know, be a part of a team uh, that broke, you know, at NC State at that time, an 11-year NCAA tournament drought. You know, that was a long time at NC State in the late 90s, early 2000s. So we broke through my senior year, got back to the tournament. We won 23 or 24 games. And from that point forward, Herb Sendek's college coaching career at NC State took off. You know, he, we were able to be a part of the start of a five-year run and um, some really good recruiting classes after that and whatnot. And uh, so my college career, you know, it, you know, it was probably like a lot of guys, you know, you come in, you start one way and you leave another. And that's what you hope to be able to do as a player. And I think I've taken all of those experiences along my way of handling players, dealing with players, being a part of teams, because I've seen about everything. You learn how to deal with a lot of different personalities. <laughs> you know, you, you room with guys from all over the country. Um, you know, you, you help recruit guys to campus, like everything that you do as a player in my world, you know, really translated um, into my profession later on, which I didn't know at the time. So uh, I had a great experience playing. And I would just say the biggest thing that you learn very early as a player is just the adversity you deal with as a young person that you have to figure out along the way.
I love that, especially because nobody really talks about the the struggles and, and just especially especially the adversity that you have to go through. I mean, and sometimes as a coach, you don't even realize you're probably more of a psychologist than you really think you are over here working with kids. No, there's no question. There's no question. I mean, like, you know, I think sometimes just being able to walk, you know, it's hard to be able to put yourself in people's shoes sometimes. So I think the times that you can put yourself in somebody's shoes and 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 just say, hey, I've been through an injury. You know, I've been through not winning. I've been through winning, you know, and, and I think today's kid probably more so than than when we we were in college and when, when I played, you know, I think the mental aspect even becomes even a little bit more because they're so fragile with social media. You know, kids are so accustomed to growing up, you know, with the, t- the phone, you know, being able to have access and listen to people, hear people, you know, in some cases, I think, you know, even more so today, it's a little bit unique because I think the mental aspect of things plays a role in, in guys' moods, depression, you know, um, you know, highs, lows. You know, there's a lot of different elements that come at guys nowadays. It's a different way of growing up, different way of watching the game, different way of playing the game. But just in general, I think that um, you're going to struggle. You're going to struggle as a player. You're going to struggle as a coach. And I think just being able to handle that type of adversity and get better from it, learn hard lessons, um, to me, just makes you better. That's what it's about. Yeah, I, I, it's funny. I was just talking to a coach the other day about, you know, it, there's that phrase in times of peace, prepare for war. So it's almost like you almost have to just put it out there that individually, as a, as a crew, fellas, it's going to get hard at some point. So what's now the best way that we can – approach how we're going to handle it because we know it's coming so you're almost like you know it's like injury prehab you know you're trying to you know strengthen your shoulder before something goes down because you know that stuff is coming so no uh, question yeah no question that's a big deal just kind of you know doing the best you can you can't prevent it but you can try to get out in front of it and you know i heard steve kerr was talking to the warriors and he got all of them in a room and you know basically his top six guys and he said, hey, look, at some point, one of you is probably not going to start on any given night for whatever reason. So let's talk about this now, about how we're going to handle it so we don't let the outside and the influence and all that stuff, you know, determine, yeah, I mean, influence us, right? Like his whole point was like, this is an elephant in the room. Let's talk about it now in early October. So yeah. we're not dealing with it in January. Yeah, I mean, I think controlling as much as anything, coaching sometimes what helps your team is controlling the narrative in-house. Really, I think Coach Calipari, he's probably the greatest narrative controller in the history of college basketball. <laughs> when you really think about it, people people talk a lot about, you know, how he's a great salesman and how he's this and that. But in reality, what he does is he really goes above and beyond the ability to control the narrative for his program and his players. You know, they're always in a cloud of stress, pressure, you know, at Kentucky in particular, you know, you, you live on the highs and lows of every day, but like he controls, he controls his narrative for his players. You know, it's kind of like what you were just saying, let's control this right away. You know? So then following your playing career, um, you start your coaching career at Western Kentucky and I know you cover in numerous places such as NC State, Arizona State, Ohio State, and Arizona as an assistant. <clears throat> so just talk about those experiences, being an assistant at all those all those stops and maybe some things that you learned there. 
Well, you know, um, I started off as a GA at NC State right after I got done playing pretty much. I was like an office intern at that time, graduate assistants. I don't even know how big a deal they were. You, you know, you were kind of like a, you know, an intern or whatever. But I got my start with Darren Horn. You know, Darren took a chance on me. Um, I was like 24 years old right out of school. I mean, I, I couldn't rent a car when I went recruiting. You know, I wasn't old enough. <laughs> so, you know, I did a lot of driving on my own with my own car because landed in in cities i couldn't even get a rental car so but it was a, it was like that one deal where you look back on it and you said probably the greatest gift that i had was the opportunity to get out on my own leave home base and at the time nc state was home base for me you know i left home base and um i was able to go out there and figure it out on my own a little bit and figure out really at that time you figure out if you want to coach or not it's hard i mean it's it's a lot different than you think it is the hours are different the pressures, the stress, the things you don't know, you know, you just don't know. And um, I got that opportunity to go right hands on with Aaron. And he put a lot of responsibility on me at a young age, um, you know, recruiting, scouting, academics, all of the things that come at you. And Western Kentucky was a great program. I mean, Dennis Felton was coming off three NCAA tournaments. Darren was coming off of a final four at Marquette. He had played at Western Kentucky. So like he had a lot of pride in what he was doing. And, you know, we recruited terrific players down there. I mean, one of the first guys I ever recruited, the first guy I ever recruited was Courtney Lee. I'll never forget, you know, being able to, you know, see Pike, see Pike High School and see Courtney. And at the end of the day, he becomes an NBA, a 14, like 15-year NBA pro uh, coming out of there. So I like, we had an unbelievable, I had an unbelievable jump start. Um, and then I went sort of back to NC State. I had the opportunity to go back and, and become more full-time and became the assistant coach at, at NC State. And, you know, I think I learned the first part of college basketball right there at a young age that, you know, Herb Sendak had completed his 10th season. He had finished his fifth straight NCAA tournament bid. And he decided to, you know, make a change and go to Arizona State. So for a guy like me, you know, you're working at your alma mater. You're like, this is the greatest thing in the world. I'm being assistant coach, the place I played forever. And the next thing you know, it's just like, hey, in 24 hours, be in Phoenix. <laughs> right. I've never been to Phoenix in my life. You know what I mean? You know what I mean? It's like we have to move. You know, we have a uh, just got married. You know, you're earlier, have a baby. All of a sudden, it's like we're going out to where? I don't know anybody out there. Like, how am I going to do this? And I think I looked at it as an opportunity at that time, probably a lot like him. This is a fresh start, man. This is just a way of broadening your network and, you know, being able to just experience it. And, you know, when we went to Arizona State, it was a really, really tough spot. You know, we were walking into, a, you know, a, a total rebuild, um, a complete and total rebuild, to be honest. And at that time, our first year in the PAC, in the PAC 10, it was Ben Hallen at UCLA, Final Fours, Tim Floyd at USC, as good as it gets. Tony Bennett uh, was at Washington State. They were ranked in the top 10. You had Oregon and Ernie Kent, who made it to the Elite Eight that year. Lorenzo Romar at Washington was absolutely loaded with players. Spencer Hodge, uh, John Brockman, uh, just pros. And, um, you know, Arizona with Lute Olson at the time was still really rolling. Um, I mean, the Pac-10 that year was historic. Trent Trent Johnson was at Stanford and had the Lopez twins. So it was maybe one of the most iconic years in Pac-10 history. We were at the, the very bottom. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. We lost 
Doug Tamra will probably text me if after he listens to this because the year was incredible. <laughs> we lost, I think, 15 straight, maybe fifth, I think it's 15 straight Pac-10 games in a row. And um, Herb did a great job. We fought our butts off, developed a zone defense that year and uh, became more of a 3-2 matchup, which he started to run. Uh, we actually ran at Ohio State for a year there. And um, we started to get really good at it, became a really tough team to play. And we ended up, we ended up, I think, that year going like maybe 2-14, and 2-16. But we beat USC at home, and we were in every game towards the end. And uh, But that year was amazing because, you know, that was the recruiting class that James Harden came in. You know, when I went out there, obviously, you don't realize what's going on at the time throughout the, you know, the rebuild. But our first class was Jamel McMillan, uh, Ricard Kuksix, James Harden and Eric Botang. And those guys, after I, I was only there one year, but those guys became in the next few years a rise to the NCAA tournament. You know, so it just goes to show you, like, those experiences, some of the relationships I developed out west carried through. And, um, you know, at that point in time, I had an opportunity to come work with Mage. You know, Ohio State was just coming off the national championship. Those guys had, had played for it all. You know, Ohio State, what a brand, what a place. And um, I had an opportunity to work with some people that I had grown up knowing, whether it was Mage at Xavier working with Sean or Thad, John Gross, whatever. But those two years was a completely different experience. You know, it was like learning a, a whole new language in coaching because I think Mage would probably say this. Thad is very unique. He's very unique in the way that he puts pressure on his staff in a different way, not an uncomfortable way, but he puts a lot of responsibility on you to deal with the players, you to develop the players, you to wake up in the morning and literally the first thing you think about is what am I going to do with my players group today? Like that was different for me. That was a different way of thinking and like being in an environment of you know, we have to create an environment, a culture where your players love to be with you was a lot different than preparing for what I was used to, which was, you know, the normal a scouting, recruiting, you know, prepare for practice, prepare for game. This was totally unique. I mean, this was like if you're not spending time with the players on the team, you were failing. You weren't doing a great job. And, and I learned like part of the success, historic success in the Big Ten with Thad's run and, and made you were a part of it all really was a w really unique way of creating a championship culture. It wasn't about plays. It wasn't about the X's and O's. It was about like your guys wanted to be with you. And I think when Thad's tenure ended at Ohio State, all you have to do is look at the just the, the, the classes and the crews of players that love their experience there and why they love their experience at Ohio State was – the camaraderie, the staff, the teammates, the winning. It was so unique to me. And by the way, yeah, we recruited great players and guys had unbelievable careers. But I just thought it was such a really, really cool time in my life to be a part of that type of scene. And you take that with you when you're able to move along the ranks. I went to Arizona a couple years. Sean took the Arizona job. Lo and behold, my experience of being at Arizona State and going out west came back around to help me again. New people out there, you know, the landscape. But I think the big thing was, um, again, going to a place and starting from scratch with a new coach and a new way of doing things. And Sean's way, although very similar to Thad's in a way of dedication to the players, 
he also has an intensity about him that probably was born in the same house that I was. <laughs> you, know, you, you, operate, you think the same, you kind of look things the same, and you could kind of tie it all together of like, this is who you really are as a person, as a, as a coach, as a competitor, but this is how you can maybe balance that and run your own program and still be great with the players, make players better, have a, have a style of play. So it was a unique tie it all together. And then. Cause that was your first time working with Sean, right? First time. Yeah. I've never, I've never worked with, with Sean. Um, big deal while, between the big deal between the breakfast table and. and yeah. You know, cause I mean, I think like one of the things is you talk to a guy on the phone every single day and it's almost like, you know, it would be a seamless transition, but he's the boss. You're the assistant coach. You need to be able to operate you know, under him and work for him and be good for him and not be the same as him. You know what I mean? But I think you have, to learn, you have to learn that as you're going, how to play off of a guy that's very similar to you. You can't be, you know, the same as him in a lot of different ways. So I had to learn that along the way, being able to adjust. But, you know, at Arizona, kind of similar. You know, we started kind of like taking over a place that was in a rebirth. Lute Olson's era had kind of come to an end. And it was kind of spotty there for a couple of years with staffs. And um, eventually all the players left. You know, I think we had seven guys in the locker room um, when, when we took over. And um, our first year, we kind of like built it and kind of, you know, brought in a recruiting class. Fortunate enough, put put some pieces together that spring, one of which was Derek Williams. Um, and, you know, we, we went at it, you know, that spring and summer about as hard as we've ever went at it as, as a coaching staff that I've been a part of to try to regain our footing. And um, we had an incredible year. Uh, I was telling somebody the other day and made, you've probably been around a couple individual seasons where you look at a player and you say, that was the greatest single season I've ever watched a guy have like very rarely, you know, whether it's Odin or whether it was Evan Turner or whether, yeah, Mike well, Conley Jr. Yeah, you probably would look at some of those guys' seasons and say, I don't remember him playing bad. You know, I don't remember him having a bad game. Like, that was what Derek Williams did at Arizona our, our second year there. He had a national, you know, player of the year type year. Um, we had a great group around him. We had, a, you know, a good core group of guys around him, nine guys. And, you know, we were a shot from the final four in our second year at Arizona. So like Kemba Walker, the year UConn won it with Kemba and went on the magical Kemba run. Yeah. We were shot from beating them and going to the final four that year. And, um, you know, so coaching goes fast. That's the one thing I'll say seasons lead into seasons. And all of a sudden you look around and you've been at a few spots, you've been down the road. And, you know, I, I got the opportunity to go to Dayton maybe two days after. Uh, once we, once we lost in the lead eight, I think it was 48 hours later, I was the head coach at Dayton and I was never back in my office at Arizona. Like, it's just, <laughs> you, know, you know, you come and you go and then you take that over and you start going in that direction. But, you know, I, I'd say this about my path. I work with and around some of the best coaches, you know, whether, not, not just head coaches, whether it's Allen, whether it was, uh, you know, James Whitford, guys who have went on to run their own programs, guys that are special, special guys that can really, I was fortunate to be around really good people. And, um, you know, I think once you take over your own program, now it's kind of like that press conference ends, you walk into your own office and you're like, oh man, here we go. This is, <laughs> this is gonna be hard, you know? I don't think anybody, 
who's taken over a job or taken over any you know, leadership role says, I have all these aspirations and dreams and thoughts. And the first thing you do is I can't probably do any of them right now. Like nothing, none of that's going to work. So, but uh, that, that's sort of my path, my, my story. Um, you know, you know, been now, I mean, I'm on my third opportunity to lead my own program. I've been really fortunate to be at good places. Uh, you know, and now that I'm at this one, you know, I have a new perspective on how to do things in a, in a different way. And we're sort of in that process now of taking over a place one way and hopefully getting it to the next level here as we keep going forward. And like you said, the third opportunity, I mean, your first head coaching position after all of those assistants um, following Arizona, I should say, was Dayton for six years, Indiana for four, and now obviously yep. currently at uh, Rhode Island. Yep. But before we talk a little bit about the head coaching, um, before we kind of flip to your your head coaching positions, I want to ask one question. So you're from Pennsylvania. Um, talk about your experience with the Beaver County. I know, I believe it was in April, April 2015. You got inducted alongside your father and your brother now uh, in the Sports Hall of Fame. How was that? How's that experience? How's that opportunity to be able to see your name in the in the lights right next to the family? Yeah, it's, you know, it's really crazy. When you grow up where we grow up, uh, it's, it's not – you know, historical, like, hey, this is basketball blue blood. You know, this is mm -hmm. like an area of the country where you're surrounded by basketball phenomena. You know, you're not, you're in, you're in the opposite. You're actually in the football gridiron, gridiron hot, hotbeds of the world. So Beaver County consists of, you know, Beaver Falls, Aliquippa, you know, Moon Town, you know, there's some, there's a lot of different, you know, little towns and cities there, but I swear to God, there's like a half a dozen NFL gold jacket Hall of Famers <laughs> with 10 minutes from where I grew up. Like, it's, right. so like when you when you're actually you get inducted into Beaver County Hall of Fame, the pictures on the wall are Dick Butkus, and Ty Law, and you know you start going down the the road of some of the guys that have have been you know Sean Gilbert, uh, Darrell Revis. You start talking about some of the greatest to ever play you know, football, but. That being said, when it comes to basketball, there's great players and great athletes in general who have come, but basketball in general, um, it starts with my dad. And my dad, for a long time, I don't even think he accepted the, the Hall of Fame induction. I think he just kept going and never really participated in it. So it was really unique that, like in 2015, when I went in um, to the Beaver County Hall of Fame, I think it was the first time that he went in as well. If you can think about it, he should have been in like 35 years earlier. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> no question. It was a unique night um, to kind of go into the to the Hall of Fame, and you sit up on the on the table with all the inductees, and one of them, you know, sort of your dad, who you would have thought you would have tended his probably as a teenager, he went in. But Beaver County is an awesome place. Um, it is full of cast of characters. I mean, it really is <laughs> characters that have come out of the area, but it's also you know, from Tito Francona to John Calipari to, you know, to Dick Butkus, you start to go down the list of people from that area of the country who have played Major League Baseball, football, basketball, coaching in general, coaching ranks. Um, it's just an incredible, you know, area. And I think you learn to appreciate once you get out of there how competitive your environment was when you grew up. You know, you just you just probably take it for granted when you when you go off to school and then you start to become a coach. You recruit players from different areas like the area that we come from, from a sporting element is as intense for young people as it gets in terms of competition. it just really is. It's a competitive area. So it was fun um, to be there that night. And I have to say, so I'm, I'm 
extremely familiar with the area. I, I live in Youngstown, Ohio. There you go. I'm currently residing in Pittsburgh, but uh, from Youngstown. So I'm more than familiar with the football side of things. Yeah. That's what everybody always talked about, you know, and then you try to get all these basketball people trying to make a name for themselves. And it's you kind of got to get out to be able to, to be able to grow it. But now kind of going back to before we were talking about your head coaching positions. Yeah. So starting with Dayton, you went into a program that had before they had a couple upsetting seasons prior to your first year coming in. You helped lead them to a 20-win season, and I believe that was the uh, Elite Eight as well. What are some immediate thoughts, you know, going into a new program that you're like, all right, this is what we – and obviously every school, everywhere you go, you have a different aspect like personnel and all that. that you guys Yeah. Need. But just some of your immediate thoughts going into Dayton. Well, I would say that, like, going into Dayton, Brian Gregory, uh, I think, was there for about eight or nine seasons prior to that. Oliver Purnell was there for about another eight or nine seasons. And um, Alan being at Xavier for a significant amount of time would know how good the players were at Dayton over Coach Purnell's years and then even into Coach Gregory's years. Dayton is a very proud place and tradition with tremendous, tremendous fans. And um, but in general, it's always been a great place. You know, it's been a good place. Like when I got there, um, Brian Gregory was going to Georgia Tech. You know, he was coming off a season where I believe maybe we were supposed to be sort of like right there for the tournament, end up going to the NIT or something like that. And, you know, maybe won the NIT or, or in and around there. But I inherited a group of players that were accustomed to being in a program that was run the right way, practiced hard, expected to win was challenging for, you know, NCAA tournament bursts. Wasn't like I walked into a place that was in really, really bad shape. I didn't, walk into, yeah. I didn't walk into a place that like, hey, we're starting completely over here. We have to we have to work our way up the ladder. Like the team I inherited had Chris Johnson, one of the all-time great players that I've ever coached. Um, Chris was from Columbus, Ohio. He was going into his senior year. I inherited Kevin Dillard, who had transferred from Southern Illinois. And he sat out the year prior, so he didn't play the year prior. But I was inheriting, you know, really, in my opinion, a high major point guard. And then there was a slew of other older players. Like, it was an older crew that we had. Josh Benson, we had Paul Williams, we had, we had uh, Matt Cavanaugh. Like, it was it was Devin Oliver was a, a rising sophomore. Like, we, we, had, we had, there was a crew there. And at that time, like, I didn't recruit anybody when I got there. Like, it wasn't like, hey, we need to go get five guys in the portal. Right. Right. Was, that's, that's, unheard of. that's unheard of. Right. The team was there. The coach left and the players were there waiting on the next coach to get there. And, you know, there was some transition there. I think, you know, Juwan Staten was transferring out, um, you know, what it may have been. But I had an older crew to work with that first year. And I think when we got there, I, you kind of looked at it and said, these guys have played all man-to-man -man defense in their careers. They've run a numbered break in their careers. They were heavy, heavy set play oriented. They valued defense and rebounding. And I felt like, you know, we should be able to come in and, and start to do some of the things that we want to do with this group and we could be successful. And we won 20 that year. We had one blip on the radar in a back in a week of back-to-back -back games at home that we lost that actually knocked us out of the NCAA tournament. We were probably a one seed or a two seed in the NIT. But we, we were probably like a game or two away from being able to actually make the tournament our first year. We had big wins. We First year we won it. 
at Temple. We broke their 25-game home win streak at Temple when Fran Dumphy was there. Temple was running the A-10 at the time. We beat Xavier at home. Um, they had a great team with two Holloway, Kenny Freeze, Mark Lyons. We were able to beat Rick Majerus at home, and Coach Majerus had just gotten St. Louis to the point where they're going to start contending. So we had a lot of good wins, but it was a fun year. But the thing I remember most about my first year was it going to year two quickly and starting over. Like it was like the, you had your first year, and now all of a sudden you have this expectation of like we're going to build off this. Oh, yeah, but oh, by the way, you're going to lose – four or five seniors, you're going to bring in five freshmen and boom, the next thing you know, it was like on the year two and it was a different team. You realize that when year, you take year two work, became year one. Right. And I think that's, that's the thing I learned quickly and made you probably wherever you start in year one, good, bad, or ugly, it's going to change and start to reflect you immediately. The changes that come into year two, whether you were really bad and you're trying to build or whether you were pretty good and you would lose a chunk, year two starts to become you. It starts to reflect you and your staff and it starts to like resemble what you're trying to do. And year two, we struggled. We had a lot of young guys. I think we ended up winning 17 or 18 games. The Atlantic 10 was loaded. Butler and VCU um, had joined the league. Um, it was a much different league. And um, we, we were young. We played five freshmen. Um, with Kevin Dillard coming back for his senior year. And, you know, he didn't have the, the strength around him that he was used to the year prior. So we kind of were up and down. And it was a little bit disappointing that in year two, I think a lot of people thought like they're going to they're gonna, they're gonna be right there, you know, to be able to do what we, we were aspiring to do here at Dayton, which is go to the tournament every year. This is what we want to do. And it was sort of a disappointing year two. And I look and I think about it, and it was kind of like year two was kind of year one because – that's when you really started to kind of like put your pieces that you're recruiting in there. Your style component had to carry over. Your staff was going into year two together. And um, I remember, you know, kind of heading into year three thinking, wow, you know, we're going into year three. And as I looked at it in year three, all of the decisions we made in recruiting started to really now take, you know, point. Your classes were getting older. Some of the transfers that you took are now going to be available the guys that have stayed over, the Devin Olivers, the Matt Cavanaugh's from the original coaching staff were now yours third year in. You had to put this thing together. And I had felt like going into year three, we had some pieces. We were going to be pretty good. We had a deep team. Um, we had a lot of different positions covered in terms of like quality depth. I remember playing our first game our third year against IPFW at the time at home opener. UD Arena, Saturday afternoon. It took the most miraculous play of my coaching career to win the game. <laughs> like we had completely fizzled out in the game. We had struggled with our defense. We had struggled with our chemistry. And um, I, I want to say, like, IPFW did everything right. Like, they fouled us when they were up three. We had to go to the line. We had to make a free throw, miss a free throw. And um, they had to inbound the ball. Like, all they had to do was inbound the ball, and, you know, their, their strategy would have probably worked. And uh, we pressed. We don't press. We threw the old – we threw the old <laughs> press up. We, we, it was like, don't let it in. Just don't let it in. Whatever you got to do, if it gets in, foul them. We force – like, a like the guy takes the ball out of bounds, and he throws a baseball pass over the top, like, 
we had done a good enough job kind of denying the inbound. He throws it like almost right to the jump circle at half court. Our center fielder comes out of nowhere and like makes a steal. And not only does he make a steal, but he's like falling down and he throws the ball just ahead. And we have a freshman at the time named Kyle Davis in his first college career game that just like scoops it, turns and fires a bullet pass to the left corner where Jordan Seibert just happened to be standing there. Three point shot at the buzzer, bang, goes in. And we win the game in year three. And I'm saying to myself, like, we're supposed to be better than this. Like, this shouldn't have happened. Like, how did this happen? You know, but it just goes to show you, like, every year is different. Regardless of your talent level or what you think, it's going to be hard. And at that time, that team sort of started to go on a run and uh, had an up and down January. But that team was a really good team. And it was a team that obviously broke our staff into the NCAA tournament. In our third season, we were able to advance past Ohio State, Syracuse, Stanford. We lost to Billy Donovan and the Florida Gators um, in the Elite Eight. And Billy's team that year uh, had won like 26 straight games going to the Final Four. It was a great team. But we had made, you know, one of the great runs in school history. But, you know, for me, it was just validation of like year one to two to three. We had finally, you know, built it. We felt our staff. And our style was a, you know, a strength. And from that point forward, you know, at Dayton, you know, we, we made the tournament every year that I was there. Uh, we won. Uh, we played for three conference championships. The remaining three years I was there, we won two of them. But along the way, each team was different. Each season took on a life of its own. The adversity that hit every team was immense. There was no smooth rides. And I think that's the thing I'm most proud about, about my time and our staff's time at Dayton. We did it and were able to consistently build, you know, a consistent championship type program in the Atlantic 10 and, and an NCAA tournament at large birth. But man, every, if you look back on every season, injuries, whatever it may have been, we had all sorts of just adversity and every team was different. But I think the thing that you look back on the most and, and you look on is the style of play is so important. Recruiting to it is so important. Your, your development piece is important. Most importantly, being able to have a standard where you're going to be able to handle adversity, good, bad, and ugly. But we had a great run there. Um, but it, I tell you what, each season took on a life of its own. We started off one way and we finished a, you know, a very different way. And I think you know, along my coaching career, I can't say that like every season is different. You know, every team is different. You know, you have to be able to kind of figure it out with every group that you have. Dayton's was a, you know, unbelievable place to coach basketball. That obviously took me to Indiana where it was four years of different, you know, adversity seasons, et cetera. And now here at Rhode Island, you know, you kind of look at all the lessons that you've learned and you hope at the very beginning here at Rhode Island, you're doing things the right way to lead you growth. So then for these couple positions, I mean, I, I love how you talked about uh one, just your experience, and I know you covered a couple of these, but I just I have to make sure to ask um, for people who may be listening who might be starting a head coaching position in the, in the near future or just in general, everybody's aspiring to be a head coach and, and some advice that maybe you have for somebody going into a new program. How can they best take this position like head on? Well, I would say this um, for guys that obviously want to be, you know, head coaches or aspiring head coaches at level. 
along the way as you're preparing to get there, I think the things you think about are how you want to play, how you want to recruit, what's your skill development. You think about all the things as a head coach that you want to do. I think the thing that gets neglected the most is who you're going to hire alongside of you. Because so many times, and Alan would probably be able to confirm this, you're in your own bubble or circle of people you know as a coach. Mm-hmm. So like a lot of times you rely on those people to help you with your networking. And those are your relationships. You know, those are the people that you trust, you know, your circle, your bubble, your tree, so to speak, of coaching. But so many times when you get the job, you have to hire people outside of your bubble, outside of your circle. Who do you really trust when you're taking it? You know, advice. How do you interview them? What do you when you interview a coach? What are you really looking for in that coach, that position? And I like along the way, whether it's high school, junior college, doesn't matter to me. You better start to build a library, so to speak, of who you may hire one day, what you'd like to hire one day, when you hire one day. What are the known factors that are you're going to get with certain positions that you want? And like to me, there isn't a more important aspect of taking over on day one than getting the right people alongside of you to help you do what you want to do, because nothing is possible without a great staff. It's just like it's not. And it's a crapshoot sometimes because depending on where you go, the region of the country, um, the league that you're coming in, the South pools that you deal with like you may not be able to hire yeah who's available mm-hmm. who's available people that you know you'd want to hire that you could actually get you know things change drastically like when when i was out of coaching for one year and i'm sitting there thinking about you know you know am i going to do this again where am i going to do this again it never crossed my mind that i'd be in the northeast <laughs> it never crossed my mind i would be at rhode island in new england or the like it never crossed my mind like I could have, I could have swore, you know, I was going to stay out of the Midwest and maybe I'd have an opportunity to go down somewhere in the South or maybe even the West because I was familiar with the West. Maybe if I was in the West, because I started thinking about like, Hey, if you got a job in, in the West coast, like who would you hire? You know, if you got a job in the South. Who would you hire? If you got a job in Texas, who would you hire? It never occurred to me. Like if you got the job in Rhode Island, who would you hire? Like, <laughs> able to say to yourself, like in your wheelhouse, when that opportunity comes, who's in that library of people you're going to hire? You know, and then I would say the second thing about that one component, I would add, when you do hire somebody, what are you getting? What are you expecting to get when you hire that person? Because if you hire somebody for something, he's a great defensive mind. He's a great offensive mind. Or he recruits a certain area. You have to be able to know that you're getting that specific element of it to be able to help you balance the staff or do what you're doing. So you don't want to make mistakes when you're hiring. I think that was the biggest thing in terms of being able to hire the known, what you're getting. And also, who would you hire? How can you, you know, who do you, who can help you hire, you know, things of that nature. I would say the second part of it is as you get going, especially early on, you're going to make a lot of tough decisions early. And you may think because in the first you know, 100 days that you're on the job, those decisions won't come back to you in year two or three or four. They do. Every decision that you make really comes back on you at some point. So I think like one, don't sacrifice like character, accountability, 
details in, in the decisions you make for quick fixes, talent, trying to win as many games as you can on day one. Like you have to be surrounded by the decisions that you make that make a lot of sense in terms of the long term. You know, they have to make sense long term. And um, I want to say more than anything, as you go through that at the very beginning, there's got to be a couple things that you hold dear to your heart as a coach, regardless of whether you're going to win a lot of games or not, whether you're able to play the way you want to play or you can't. There has to be a way of life that you're starting to bring to the table, because if you don't have everyone believing in certain things are important, you know, really, you're going to be all over the place. There's got to be a few known factors around the program, coaches and players that whether you're 0-20 or you're 20-0, and 0, you're starting to understand that, like, we believe in what we do. You have to have some things that you really believe in early on that, like, you can go to, that you can hold people accountable, and, like, certain things are just that's a standard that you're trying to build. So I think, like, that, those would be the things, I think, as you're taking something on. Nothing's more important than the staff. The decisions you make real early, I would say, you know, have some thought process in the long term versus the immediate reward. And then the last thing is, you know, you got to have some things that like are staples that like are coming in the in the door day one that can't leave you, whether you're 20 and 0 or you're own 20. Arch, what would you say now being in Rhode Island? You know, staples are great because they kind of they stay the same, but sometimes they're they shift a little bit, but they're kind of similar. Offense, defense, just give up as few of the goods or as many of the goods as you want at this stage right now. What's most important to you on either side of the ball? Well, from an offensive perspective, really, really a philosophy of how successful you are as an offense starts and stops with how many different ways the ball can touch the paint. So, you know, for me as a coach, especially at this point in time, valuing possessions where you're teaching your players, number one, the paint is the most important thing. Can you get it there by the post? Can you get it there by the dribble? Can you get it there by the pass? Can you get it there by the offensive rebound? But like, if the ball touches the paint, the, the chances of you being successful as an offense significantly go up versus the possessions that you have when the ball doesn't touch the paint. So I think like being a paint touch program and understanding from an offensive perspective this is a good shot. This isn't a good shot. And by the way, the turnovers that we're having really start and stop with the ball isn't touching the paint versus it is. Right, right. You know, so I think, like, we want to be great at the free throw line in terms of getting there. Two, we want to be great at being able to have some balance in terms of inside out different ways of doing that. Whether yeah, it's like football, run, run versus pass. Right. And I, and I think if you're trying to play fast like we are, shot selection becomes probably the most important thing you're doing. So I think as an offense, I don't care how you're playing, fast, slow, whatever. But for us and as we're doing it, we really, really are evaluating, teaching, and showing our players every day the value of the paint. It really helps you clean up turnovers. I think it really helps you clean up shot selection as well. Um, but the best teams, you know, from an efficiency standpoint, you know, they're going to have great twos. They're going to get to the foul line. They're going to, in some cases, be a good offensive rebounding team or not. The threes that they get are great threes in transition or rhythm threes out of kickouts, the ball's in. 
And then the second thing is just you know being able to play without turning the ball over. How many games you're in when you turn the ball over like 11 or less times over my coaching career? It's like you're right there. Last four minutes of the game, last four minutes of the game, it may come down to just like if you turn the ball over 11 times or less, 10 times or less, you're in every game. So like that's offense. I think defensively it's probably the flip. You know, it's the flip. It's, it's the ability Keep to get the hell out of there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's changed over the years. You know, that used to be just straight pack line defense or impact the ball on ball screens. But now it's, you know, trapping the post. It's different ball screen coverages that are forcing tough twos. You know, I think it's evolved. But I think we want to be a team defensively that's very, very good in transition defense. And that's very, very good in the half court and being able to try and find different ways to protect that paint. But I also will say this we're really, really on it right now in terms of becoming a good defensive rebounding team. Because if you don't give up second shots and you don't turn the ball over, you're right there. No matter who you are. It don't matter who you are, big, small, you know, deep or a thin team. If you defensive rebound and you don't turn it over, you have a chance to be not only in every game, but you have a chance to win every game. So I think for us, it's defensive rebounding, it's, it's getting back and it's protecting the paint. And then what are the unique ways that you can diversify that defense in your coverages to be able to help you versus certain teams? You know, but I think, you know, for us, you know, we're really trying to emphasize a style of play right now. And we're not going to go away from it because I think we have the team that's able to do it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. You start to start to see an identity kind of come together from yeah i mean i think you know one thing about coaching is when you watch film a lot or you're watching teams you can tell exactly what that team is about they have an identity and i think you know when you don't have that when you don't have that you know you can you're going to struggle being able to really cultivate you know belief in what you do we have to be able to have a few things we hold our hat on you left us with some gold mines right there some some of that information that that was that was perfect thank you I knew landmines. I knew landmines weren't coming from March. We we're gonna get gold mines instead of landmines. Yeah. <laughs> hey, hey, man, I'm telling you, you learn, a, you learn, you learn a hard, you learn a lot of hard lessons in coaching. <laughs> yeah. You know, and I think you got to be able to to learn. But I really, I really feel like college basketball is still a unique game. It still operates around the basket. You know, as many as many as people want to emphasize the three and people want to do all that stuff, it still comes down to finding layups, easy baskets. And, you know, college basketball is the one game. Well, FIBA as well, I think. But college basketball is still the one game you can play in the post. You can have post guys that that dominate. You look at college basketball right now between Zach Eady, Klingon, Hunter Dickinson, the big is a part of college basketball still. Well, right before we cut to our final segment, Alan, I'm not sure, do you have anything else before or – no, nah, man, bring on, bring on the quick hitters, man. We, we, uh, right. th this will be good. I'll probably learn something I didn't know after I'd known this dude <laughs> a long time, but I'm sure the quick hitters are going to reveal something. Uh, <laughs> so really what this is, I'm sure you've probably seen Family Feud before, how they put 30 seconds up on the clock. We don't necessarily have the 30 seconds, but we're just going to shoot what we I'm call our Family Feud. Are you? <laughs> Perfect. Well, this is more personalized. This is more right. personalized. Um, but all we're going to do is shoot three quick hitters at you, three all quick right. questions to kind of let our listeners just learn a little bit about, about you as a person. But the first one we're going to go with, if there was any historical figure, coach or just anybody in general, who would you most like to meet? Oh, wow. I mean, that's a tough one there, historical figure. 
That's a very difficult question to answer, you know, depending on, on, on what you want, um, whether you want coaching or whatever you want. But I'll tell you what, the guy that I would love to sit down with, I don't know if this is the all-time favorite or this is the go-to, but I would love to sit down with Bill Walsh. I mean, I think, like, when you start talking about um, building a program, the intricacies of a standard around the operation – when you start thinking about teaching the game, like he's probably, you know, it's probably phenomenal. It's probably, there's very few. I mean, if you read any of the books about him or around him, they're mesmerizing in terms of like the ability to create culture, the ability to, to create a belief in what you do, how you, how you operate. And just in general, like the different themes that he would go through to attack his team, like, me it's just it's so well-rounded now that's that's from a professional side of things like i'd love to i could sit and listen i think to people talk about bill walsh or read about bill walsh all the time just because of the intricacies of how it was from it was from top to bottom in every detail of the program not just you know from practice to games to the office to just the whole comprehensive view of how you develop a program um, to me, it was like it was it was mesmerizing to read and listen to to his his stories about the San Francisco 49ers and just that type. Obviously, having Jerry Rice and Joe Montana and whatnot can get you. <laughs> <laughs> that helps. Great, great book, though. That the score great takes book. care like of one itself. of my favorite one of my favorite books, maybe the top book that I would read. Like if I told somebody to read a book about, hey, you want to be a coach? Great. Read this book right here. Oh, man. No doubt. Great. Yeah, point. No question. And then your, of any, your favorite nationality of food. Where I'm at right now, Italian's great. Like it's the best <laughs> Italian food. It's the best Italian food in the country. So you, you love Italian food, right? But uh, to me, um, I'm a big Mexican food guy. Okay. So if you gave me my choice of like the best of the best, I, I, I could probably tell you that I'd love to get some Mexican probably over Italian right now. All I eat seafood here, so I don't get any. I'm extra sure. You <laughs> probably get some good seafood. Best seafood you when you're in Rhode Island. Uh -huh. the best seafood you've ever tasted. Best best I'm seafood sure. you've ever tasted around here. Uh, and then the final one. So, what motivates you the most while you're at work? What motivates me the the most while I'm at work? Yep. Whether it's like, well, I don't want to necessarily give any answers, but yeah, like something in particular that maybe gets you up every morning. And you're like. Like, let's go. Let's get this day going. Yeah, I think the, the thing that motivates me the most at work um, at any time during the day or any time during the regular season, off season, whatever it is, there's a component to our day that we have to turn it on for our players. You have to be you have to like the amount of attention to detail and the amount of care that has to go into that one shooting workout, the one individual workout the team practice that you're getting ready to have the shoot around that you're getting ready. I think the thing that motivates me the most is like when we being able to really be able to be ready and turn it on that when they show up, they sort of know they're going to get the best. They're going to get your best. And if they're not ready, that's on them. But like the bottom line is it's not going to be because when you show up, they kind of thought one way, Hey, I thought this was going to be one. They know when you show up, they better be ready. This is going to be, they're going to get it. They're going to get, they're going to get your best. And I think what motivates me the most right now, this time of year, because this is like the grind days of college mm -hmm. basketball. This is like your staff. 
trying to make them better, trying to get the practice going. There isn't a day that like right now doesn't motivate you to get to three o'clock. And when, when it shows up at seven, you have your players looking around exhausted, feeling good. They competed like practice was what you thought it was going to leaving practice and feeling good. It's probably one of the best feelings as a coach you can have. Because game day, you can't control game day, but like you want to be able to control your environment. And I think like leading the day and saying, man, we had a good one today. <laughs> you know, that, that's a win. And that's a great win for, for the coaching staff. But just in general, I think it starts and stops with having the ability on a year-round approach that in this profession, you have to be ready for your players. More gold. More gold. And I guess the final thing, the final question we ask all coaches who are on this call. So of any, I know there's a lot, but – if you had to pick a number one top best piece of advice for young rising coaches who were trying to get their foot in the door, how and how can they accomplish this goal? Well, I would say the first thing is, as a young person um, that wants to get into coaching at any level, you have to ask yourself a question of who have I worked under? Who have I worked with? How are you doing a great job for them? because they're going to be your greatest advocates in sales people and your head coach, the assistant coaches you work with. If you're a manager, the players in that program, the coaches in that program, the trainer in that program, the place that you're currently at, are you kicking ass? Are you doing everything you can to make that place that you're at the best? Because there's a lot of guys that want to get into coaching, et cetera. And I think they're all over the place in terms of reaching out to people and doing different things and want to do this. And then the place that they're at doesn't really even advocate for them. It's <laughs> <laughs> kind of like, wait, what? I, I heard about this guy. He's a manager for you or he's a coach for you. It's like, who? And it's like, wait a minute. You know, you got to be great at where you're at. That's step one. I mean, you got to be great at where you're at. You got to do a great job for the people you're at because they're the best salesperson. I would say the second thing is every person's different. Every person has a unique skill set. And I think like working on your craft to get better at certain things is important, but like handling a lot of duties being like, and major, major probably knows this managers are the key to any program success, but they're also the most hireable people when you get jobs because they do film. They're in practice every day. They're on the road every day. They're taping, they're taping the floors. They're rebounding off hours. They're in the office at night during recruiting. Like they're involved in everything. And like some, sometimes they're the most hireable guys, but like, what can you do? What have you learned at a young age? Are you involved in the recruiting process on visits? Are you, are you involved in individual instruction year round because you love the game um, in practice? How many details are you keeping score or in practice? Are you, whatever you're doing, handle a lot of different roles as a young assistant coach, maybe in high school, how many roles can you handle? Right. And then I would say the ultimate deal is networking. You got to get outside your bubble because it's like, if Mage is hiring a guy or I'm hiring a guy, it's kind of like you go to who, you know, how many people are you involved with? You know, some like, do you work USA basketball? Can you get involved in any level grassroots basketball? Can you work basketball camps? Can you, you know, coach AAU basketball in the summertime? How many different pockets of networks do you have around you that you can dip into to work? Sometimes that's player development. Sometimes that's the video department in the NBA. Sometimes that's USA basketball in the summer. 
It may be summer camps at multiple basketball camps around the way. But like you have to get outside of your comfort zone and you got to go move. You got to put yourself in different regions of the country to get to know people. You know, you're only going to be as good as your network, you know, who knows you. Um, but I would also say this. I'm big into the known. I think I've said this a number of times. When, it, when you hire somebody, whether that's from GA to a, getting a manager to an assistant coach, what do you know you're getting from that person? Day to day. Yeah, no doubt. I know that when I bring this graduate assistant into my program, he's played four years of college basketball and he can help me on the court. I know when I hire this GA or, you know, first step in the door type of a position, he was a manager and he ran the film department or he helped the video department. You know, I know that that guy can do this thing. So I think the more you can do and the more you can say that you've done Obviously, it gives you a leg in, a leg up, so to speak, sometimes when, when you're able to do it. But um, I really believe that, like, getting in the door is a hard thing, but you got to work at it. And I think if I was recruiting prospects, the more prospects that you recruit, the more people you get to know, the more people know you. I would say if you want to be a coach, you have to recruit coaching staffs. The more coaching staffs you know, the more people on the ladder on the coaching staff you know, the more level you're going to have to be able to be communicated about and communicated to so work hard recruit people recruit coaches recruit staffs along the way as you're young so that basically wraps it up for us before we get to our closing remarks does anybody have any final comments anything else to add hey man just personally arch i, I want to say thanks man for doing this number one um thrilled for you man uh, i know big things are coming for uh Rody, as they say up there. Yeah, Rody. Uh, <laughs> but uh, now, nah, man, just appreciate your friendship more than anything. I mean, regardless of basketball, but uh, just uh, know each other for a long time and um, enjoy your friendship, man. So appreciate you doing this. No, I appreciate you guys having me on anytime, Age. You know, I look at it as if it's one of those deals. If, you, if you're in a locker room with somebody at some point in time, your brother's forever. But if you happen to be in a coaching staff, in an office together at any point in time during your life at that point it's a very unique relationship and the stories that kind of go back, uh, <laughs> back in the day, you can talk stories all day long but it's a brotherhood man and you and i had two good years together at ohio state man that was a lot of fun when we worked together well yeah that's it for us today with rising coaches again thank you coach archie miller for being on the call today sharing all your experiences and knowledge with us and um thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in and that does it again for another episode of the Rising Coaches Podcast. I'm Doug Caputo, Alan Major. Keep working and keep rising, coaches. Prepare your team for success this season with our friends at Dr. Dish Basketball, the official number one selling shooting machine in basketball. If you're looking to transform and focus your team's training efforts, all you have to do is mention Rising Coaches or tell them we sent you with the Rising Coaches Podcast. For an additional $300 off, select Dr. Dish shooting machines. I want to thank all our listeners for tuning in with us this episode. If you are not a member, want more content, or even be a potential member on our member spotlight to have your story heard, go visit risingcoaches.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and X at Rising Coaches. And don't forget to subscribe, leave a rating, and review so we can continue to keep rising together.